If you would, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel, chapter 36. That's going to be on page 613 if you're using one of the Bibles we have provided for you. Uh, Book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. So, between the ages of 10 and 12 years old, I would kind of have the same routine. I'd come home from school, I'd eat the same snack in the same place and watch the same show, typically. It was either a show, if you're interested, it was called uh, DuckTales or, uh, or Darkwing Duck, whichever, whatever the time was. I, w- I would watch those things, eat my snack, then head off to practice uh, to play some golf, some basketball, or some baseball. And it was a secret indulgence, to be sure. I loved those mini pizzas. And I loved that half hour of watching animated ducks. I just enjoyed it. I looked forward to it every day after school. And on the way home, all I could think about was that, that mini pizza, lightly toasted. And now, look, did my mom basically just slab some, some prego on a, on a hamburger bun using possibly expired cheese? Uh, yeah, yeah, she did. She did. Sometimes you tasted it, too, and you just thought, mmm, lovely. Uh, but to me, it was like a gourmet meal. I loved it. So I ate it with zeal. I ate it with gusto. I just put it down the hatch. And everyone in that household could tell. Because I left behind some evidence. I changed the color of the carpet uh, where, I, where I ate that food. Um, and I would eat, I would eat. It would go all over the place. My mom made me change spots. And I would just stay in a different area. Like, I just couldn't stop. I loved it so much. And I was just a chronic stainer. So uh, we invested in everything we could, of course, Resolve Carpet Cleaner. Uh, we had multiple Costco-sized uh, uh, tubs of that, scrubbing, washing, dabbing. It got to the point where I actually heard <laughs> my dad talk to my mom, saying, are we going to continue to try to clean this carpet, or maybe we should just get a new carpet, right? To, I mean, can we actually improve what is happening there with the, the new coloration, or do we need a complete overhaul of what's happening there in our living room? And it's a fair question. It's a fair question for carpets plagued by chronic stainers. And it's a fair question for life plagued by chronic sinners. Can we improve this? Can we improve this, our lives, or do we need a complete overhaul to them? Some of you come this morning with that kind of question, or something like it. As in, do, do I need just a few adjustments to my marriage? Do I, do I need just a little bit of wisdom to make better decisions with my life? Do I need just that little bit of prayer to feel healthier, finally? Or, or get that one piece of good advice to get my career on track, or to get my kids finally growing and developing in the right directions, or just behaving me? Or do I need something much more drastic, a complete overhaul of who I am, of what I'm doing, and how I'm doing it? Let's be real. The former is much easier to admit than the latter. Most of us need to be completely desperate to say, I need something brand new. I need a complete overhaul to this life I'm trying to live. But we face the question, improvement or overhaul? And it's a question we're going to keep asking throughout this morning, Because it's a question that's brought up, that's addressed by our text today in Ezekiel 36. God's people at this point in history have not only wandered for their relationship with him, they've wandered to other hymns. 
meaning they've wandered to other counterfeit gods. They've sought their satisfaction. They've sought their worship and someone else other than the Lord God. And worse is they can't see the depth of their rebellion, that they're off track with God. They they can't see the self-sufficiency of their life, their pride, their misdirected worship. So God orders a nation named Babylon to invade their land and do some drastic things like burn God's temple, the place where he dwells, to the ground to enslave his people. And what's even worse, you think, okay, temple burned to the ground, we're enslaved, we're deported. You think God's people would get in and say, we need some real, like, we need to change. But their attitude was one of basically, okay, yeah, we probably need to make some improvements. Granted. Here comes this prophet named Ezekiel. We don't know much about Ezekiel other than the fact that he was a priest and that he was married. But you want to know how we know he was married? Kind of interesting. In Ezekiel 24, God tells Ezekiel that his wife is going to die suddenly. And upon her death, he's not allowed to mourn or even shed a tear. That's completely bizarre, right? But, but this is the kind of life, the kind of ministry, the kind of life that this dude leads, Ezekiel. He's not the kind of guy, I think of all the prophets we've read, he's not the kind of guy you just ask out for a beer or a cup of tea to get life advice. Like, you know, I don't feel immediately comfortable around Ezekiel. Like, yeah, this, this dude's cool. Let's go grab a meal together. He's the kind of guy you'd probably almost be embarrassed to tell your friends, like, you know, actually, I got help from that Zeke guy. Yeah. <laughs> but it helped. And your friends are looking at you kind of weird, like, have you lost your mind? Like, no one even talks to him. That's the kind of dude he eats. He's a weird kind of guy who says deep and radical things that, that, that kind of resonate with you, but you're way too embarrassed to admit that. There's no way you're going to approach him unless your life is in deep doo-doo and you're completely desperate. That's when you go to a guy like that. Maybe you know a guy or a gal like that in your life that sometimes what they say is like, well, that's pretty true, but you know, I don't know if I'm going to approach them. That's Ezekiel. He gets visions of creatures with different body parts interchanged. Can you imagine sharing that with your friend? Or he, he gets visions of wheels that can rotate in any direction, including skyward. He eats a scroll and a vision and tells people about it. One year, or about a year and a half, he just lies in front of the city gate. And for 390 days, Ezekiel lies on one side like this. And for 40 more days, he turns over and lies on his other side. In front of everyone. I just did it for like 10 seconds. you're like, man, that's kind of weird. This guy did it for 430 days. And randomly switches sides. He's not the kind of guy who's around to dispense nuggets of wisdom, but call you to a vision of life-altering proportions. That's what Ezekiel is around to do, and hopefully in our lives today, to vividly confront us with a reality that maybe, just maybe, a complete life overhaul is needed. And that's what he shares in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. Read that with me if you would. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood with which they had shed in the land, for the idols uh, with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. 
I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people said of them, hey, these are the people of the Lord. And yet, they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So God's people not only wandered for him, but as I mentioned before, they were seeking other hymns. They were seeking other counterfeit gods. Now, when you and I hear the word idol, we often think of people with long robes, shaved heads, bowing down in front of a large wooden statue. And to some extent, that is true in the Old Testament. That actually happens. But at its core, an idol is anything, even a good thing, we turn into an ultimate thing. It could be your job. It could be your kids. It could be your marriage. It could be money, success, power. It could be basically anything that we put into the place that only God belongs in our lives. First place. And God vividly shares his feelings about that. You heard it, I'm sure, in verse 17. There are ways before me, the people of God, there are ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. And I know you were hoping I would not read that again. And, and the reason is, you're open for that, is because it's gross. It is gross. People, even in the you know, tell-all Kardashian world we live in today, don't talk about that. Like, that is off-limits. Even commercials on TV don't go into that, or they do it very vaguely. And yet, God uses this image through Ezekiel. Because are seeking life, are seeking satisfaction, are seeking a sense of identity from things and people other than God, from counterfeit gods. It's like we are shoving in God's face this image of verse 17. I don't want to repeat it again, but we're, we're, we're saying, God, this is what I have for you. This is what I give you. Because I want to give my worship and my heart, my sense of identity and satisfaction somewhere else. So it's pretty serious pretty serious. So again, Ezekiel talking here about an improvement to your life or an overhaul. So God disciplines his people, gives them what they deserve, and the Lord will come to his people's rescue. Continue to read with me, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 25. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, is it not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act? It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from you the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. We're told here that God will rescue his people. He will eventually cleanse people from their sins. He says here he's going to cleanse them from their idols or counterfeit gods. What God is doing here, basically, is he's pointing ahead to a time, the time of Jesus Christ. He's pointing ahead to Jesus, whose death cleanses every person who believes that he is God and can forever forgive their sin. He cleanses you completely. Let me give you a couple verses to show you this. This is what Ezekiel is referring to. He's referring to Jesus. Hebrews 9, 13-14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You hear those words, you don't have to get all of that, but you hear highlighted, the sprinkling of Jesus' sacrifice purifies us. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says something similar. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, in other words, be in the presence of God, by the new and living way he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through his death, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him with a full a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? So Ezekiel is the first to say this sprinkling, this, this cleansing is going to happen and you're going to see it fulfilled through the death of Jesus Christ. He alone can cleanse us from the guilt of our sin and our rebellion. And that's usually what we hear. Even from me. I've said it so many times, even recently. Jesus died to make you right with God. And that's true, but it's not the only reason Jesus died. It's not the only reason why God saves us. And that's what we hear over and over from God in our passage. It's not the primary reason God saves us. Look at that, verse 20 through 21, right? When you came to the nations, say, they profane my name, verse 21, but I had concern for my name. Look down there in uh, verse 22. It's not for your sake, Israel, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. The nations will know that I am the Lord. Not for your sake primarily, for my sake, for my fame, for my reputation, God will act in our lives and save us and rescue us. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus died for all, that those who may live may no longer live for themselves, but for God. So Jesus came to not only rescue us from our sin, but from the mentality that life is primarily about me. That, that all this is about me. And Jesus came to rescue us from that because our heart will find actual satisfaction when we realize our life is about Him. That's where we're meant to live. Otherwise, we're like a fish out of water. It feels like we're free, but in reality, we're just suffocating and can't, can't swim. We're made to live for his glory and for the fame of his great name. That's what God is concerned about, his fame, his glory going public. And next week I'm going to talk about why this is so good. It may sound harsh. It's not for your sake I'm doing this, guys. It's for my sake. It may sound harsh, even self, but it's actually for our good. We're going to talk about that more next week. But our passage goes on to tell us about what is needed to overhaul our lives, to actually have that mentality of living for God, of going from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. What is required for that? Well, let's read Ezekiel 36, 26-36. So he goes on to say, I'm going to cleanse you, and then I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people. I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain, make it abundant, lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree increase and the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And you will remember your evil ways. Your deeds were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed, be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, all your sin, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being desolation in the sight of those who pass by. And they will say, hey, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places. I have replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So, again, this passage doesn't, as you can tell, doesn't give practical wisdom or that, the how-tos of how to gradually move from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Rather, it gives these glorious possibilities of a complete overhaul of your life. A new heart with a new power, a new future that can actually enable you to live for the sake of God's name, for His fame, for His reputation. It is a possibility that we have through Jesus Christ. So my, my job for the rest of this morning, I'll just do this briefly, is to hold out these glorious possibilities for you. And that's what I'm going to do. So first of all, we're told that we can have a new heart. Through Jesus, we can have a new heart to love what God loves. Look at verse 26 again. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put in you, and I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He means a, a heart of tenderness. A heart that responds to the things that God loves. You might remember during my message on Jeremiah a few weeks back, we focused exclusively on the heart and God's understanding, a biblical understanding of a heart. God created the heart to be the control center of a human being. It's the place where beliefs and intentions, commitments are formed and sometimes clash, right? And that's why we have a hard time making decisions and doing things and sometimes making bad decisions. Because those things are conflicting in our hearts. And God says, I know something's wrong with your heart. I'm going to act. And I have acted through Jesus Christ. I've actually opened the possibility to give you this entirely new control center from which to operate your entire lives. So your life won't any longer be just about you. It can be about me. It can be about others. He removes the heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh. And all you have to do to receive this is ask. That's really the take-home this morning, ultimately. If you ask, God acts. But again, this comes down to whether you believe you can make improvements to your own heart, fine-tune what's going on inside of you to help you live for something greater than yourself, or do I need a complete overhaul of my life? Imagine, if you would, me holding a glass of water. And actually, you can imagine that because I have a glass of water up here, so that's going to be pretty easy for you. Imagine I have a glass of water, which I do, And I, uh, and I shake it, right? I shake the water. And I ask you the question, okay, uh, why did water spill out? Well, what, what is, what's, what's the natural answer? Why did water spill out of this? Why is it spilling? Because I'm shaking it, right? And that would be a correct answer. The water is spilling out of this because I am shaking the water, no problem. But there's another correct answer, and that is water came out of this because... There's water inside the glass in the first place. If there's no water in the glass, water doesn't come out. doesn't spill everywhere. This last Sunday and Monday, my boys were doing life together. Taking them to and from school together. To and from you know, football practices, baseball practices, eating together, playing together, watching some basketball together. And you know, there are times they're taking advantage of me a little bit because their mom's away right now. And as that was happening, I, I, I started to get a little bit 
snappy with them. All right? I mean, I was snapping fingers. I was clapping hands, right? Barking orders. I felt myself doing this. And I get to the end of the day, and I start to wonder, have I even laughed this afternoon or this evening? Have I even, have I even smiled? There's definitely not been any hugs given out. And so I apologized to them. I said, gosh, guys. And I, my discontent with the fact that, that my wife's not here spilled over into their lives. And you can ask the question, like, why did I do this? And one answer is that my life, like this glass, was shaken. It was shaken by the fact that, you know what, my wife's sick right now. And she had to get off island because of that sickness. And um, she's not going to be back probably until till mid-April. Well, she's coming back mid-April. I can blame my circumstances on my attitude. I can blame my environment, all of which these things can be improved. Or I can really put the blame where it lies, my heart. The the discontent in my heart, which spilled over into my kids' lives, and that's a problem, and that needs an overhaul. If the discontent wasn't there in the first place, it wouldn't have spilled into their lives. Jesus died to give you a new heart, one that responds to what he loves, that responds to how he is glorified. Do you see your need for that? He also offers us a new power to to do right as God does right. Look at that in verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit, capital S, spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus died to give us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, make us make his home there and empower us to live for His glory. Not for ourselves, but for Him. And again, this comes down to the question, which I'm going to keep putting before us, whether or not we need a complete overhaul, or maybe it's possible through through the power of my will, my self-discipline, implementing the right habits, that I can make all the necessary improvements to, to be a good person, just like Jesus was a good person. Maybe if I just try hard enough, Form those habits. I, I can be more like Jesus. And a lot of people have read the life of Jesus that way. That he's a great standard to live up to. But let me tell you something. It pretty much always fails. The very first attempt to portray Jesus on the big screen is an example uh, of our inability to do right like Jesus on our own, on our own strength. It's a 1920s era film. Era, that was like a silent films era. Cecil Cecil, uh, B. DeMille, who uh, later went on to uh, produce and direct the Ten Commandments, he he directed this movie called, before that, called The King of Kings. DeMille cast this British-born actor named H.B. Warner as Jesus. And Warner was kept on a short leash during the movie's filming because DeMille was concerned that any sort of aberrant behavior by the lead actor deemed inconsistent but the image of Jesus would result in negativity for the film, right? There's a lot of advertising for it. If this guy, this Hollywood star, acts in an inappropriate way, like that wouldn't matter today, I know. But but the 1920s, if he acts in an inappropriate way, no one would go see this film. So DeMille, part of their contract, he enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up a good Jesus image. He had to actually sign an agreement barring him for five years to appear in any film roles that might compromise their holy screen image. This holy screen image. 
So during the filming, the, you know, Warner would drive to the set with the blinds down, one of those old kind of, you know, Ford cars, whatever. He wore a veil, actually did this, he wore a veil as he walked from the parking lot to the set, so he didn't see any, you know, indecently clad women on the way. Can you imagine the scene for a, for a movie star? DeMille separated Warner from the other cast members. He forced him to eat alone every day. He didn't play cards. He didn't go to ball games. He didn't ride a convertible because that was seen as bad. He didn't go swimming. So he had all these regimens and rules intended to make Warner more holy, and they all backfired. Instead, the pressure to be more like Jesus, to, to live this do-right kind of life on his own strength, drove him further away from Jesus. So towards the end of the production, Warner had hit the bottle, became an alcoholic, never recovered. An extremely sad story. This illustrates, though, what the Apostle Paul says about our struggle and our need. Apostle Paul said, hey, I want to do good. I want to improve. But there's something else going on inside of me called the, the sinful nature so that I actually can't do good like I want to. Like, I see Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, I want to try to develop these habits to be like him, and yet I find myself can't not do it. Why is that? And so Paul throws up his hands, says, who will deliver me from this, this condition? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's the only hope I have. He knew, and Paul knew this better than anyone, that his discipline, his self-discipline, his self-improvement couldn't change him. Couldn't make him more like, couldn't empower him to do what was right. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower us for that. But you have to admit that you need the complete overhaul. The third thing that Jesus can do for you is give you a new future to end up where God lives. I love these verses, verses 33 through 35. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by, they will say, this land that was desolate has become now like the Garden of Eden. The waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. My dear friend, one of our elders, uh, Gordon McRae, he and I often have a friendly debate about what heaven will be like. Will it be more like a garden or more like a city? And will it be more like a place where God's creation is untarnished, pristine, full of peace? Or a place where there's culture and those made in God's image have, have built lasting contributions for his glory? And of course, the answer is both. God, God says through Ezekiel here, and it's wonderful that both things are true about a final destiny for all who are transformed by Jesus. Right, he talks about the Garden of Eden and cities now fortified and inhabited. It's wonderful. They're both right there together. And the final book of the Bible, which talks about the end of the world as we know it, is the book of Revelations. And the last two chapters of Revelation are about a Christian's final destiny, heaven. In Revelation 21, God says there's going to be a city. Listen to this. And I saw a city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in Revelation 22, God says there's going to be a garden as well, or more specifically, a garden city, if you will. 
Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As, in, as we saw in the Garden of Eden, that, that river flowing through it, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, to remind you of the trees in the Garden of Eden, yielding its fruit each month. These leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. That, this, this garden was cool. cool about what God did in creating us. It's this garden city. Future is built into all of us. The Bible actually says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And thus many of us try to improve our lives to achieve a better future on our own. This kind of future on our own. So think about it. On the one hand, we want our lives to have purpose, to make an impact, to leave a legacy behind. In other words, we want to build a city. And yet, ultimately, we want peace. We want to be filled with tranquility and rest because we want our lives to be like a garden. And so we we fine-tune our lives to that end. Rest, contribution, improvement, tranquility, peace. And, And we go back and forth between those things because God has put that in our heart. That's what we were made for. So you can try to fine-tune your life to make that happen. Through yoga and big goals, you can try that. Or you can have a future completely overhauled through Jesus Christ so one day you can dwell in the city where God lives and rest in the garden where he rests. The choice is yours. Improvement or overhaul. That's it. That's our choice this morning. And the good news is Jesus Christ here and now can cleanse you for a new heart, a new power, and a new future, a complete and total overhaul. All you have to do is ask. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for taking action in our lives when we were unable to improve ourselves. There are some here, God, I just, I believe this morning there are some here. We've prayed for them this week. We prayed for them this morning who recognize they have a choice before them. Do I keep trying to make improvements of my life, tinker with my life, get the right piece of advice, the right prayer, the right this or right that? Or do I just need a complete and total overhaul of who I am, of what I'm doing, and how I'm doing it? We thank you, God. We thank you so much. You didn't leave us to ourselves, but you gave us Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that through your death, we might be cleansed to actually not just be forgiven and reconciled to you, but to be able to live for you, for the, for the fame of your name, for your, your glory, that it might go more public in our lives. But that's only going to happen with a new heart, a new power, and a new future. So please just help us this morning. Say a simple yes to you, Jesus, that we love our lives to be completely overhauled and transformed. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.